Hello and welcome to the Cat Master Chronicles. We have exciting, interesting and powerful stories from cat owners about well-being. I'm your host, Michelle Adams, the founder of Chatty Cats Care, a professional cat sitting company. Join me as I dive deep into conversation with cat owners about their individual journeys. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode. This episode is brought to you by Chatty Cats Care, London's professional cat sitting company. Welcome to the Cat Master Chronicles episode 21. This week we are honoured to be joined by May Louis. She is founder of May Louis Consultancy Business, teaching individuals, businesses and organisations through leading anti-oppression workshops. This is a conversation we all need to hear and I hope it reaches the ears of the people who need to hear it most. May has a wealth of experience within her field, which includes over 30 years of experience working in non-profit organisations, and she has a master's degree in education since 1997, and I'm so excited to find out more. She's also a proud cat mum with two cats she currently owns, but she has loved and cared for cats for a number of years, most of her life. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining us today, May. I'm so excited and honoured to have someone with your in-depth experience and knowledge on the show. I've briefly introduced you already, but if you could please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself, that would be great. Uh, Hi, Michelle, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I am very, very happy and excited uh, to be here today. So uh, in addition to what you've already uh, described, which is really the, the passion in terms of the work that I do um, in, my, in my work world, uh, I also have an extensive background in um, the Violence Against Women community, uh, the Chinese Canadian community, and doing a number of different anti-racism and anti oppression workshops uh, over the years with different community groups. Um, I identify as mixed um, and we'll talk more about that I'm sure and uh, I'm also a published writer and have a couple of uh, pieces uh, coming up uh, at the end of this year and in the spring of next year. Uh, I enjoy knitting, baking, I bake a lot of uh, cute treats that I give to my friends shaped like different animals, it's quite fun. (laughs) <laughs> and um, and my cats over the years. So my first cat was my old girl Munchkin, who was a stray calico that I found, and um, and brought her home basically. And uh, when I, w- I was in a relationship at the time, and when that relationship ended, I was very clear: I'm taking the cat. There was no discussion. I was taking the cat, and uh, I took on uh, Olivia, who lived with us. Um, me and Munchkin for a while. She was quite elderly at the time and she had nowhere to go. And uh, and that was a whole adventure because she really didn't like Munchkin and she really didn't like me. So that was (laughs) a challenge. And my two current cats, uh, Chaos and Serenity, who are uh, tuxedo litter mates. um, And um, they are just really fun to have, especially uh, in the pandemic when uh, sort of not going out as much. And they're, they're great company. Yeah, cats, cats add 
like so much to your life and um yeah i can completely i think all of our listeners can kind of relate to that as well and thank you so much for filling us in uh with all of that information it's very interesting to hear so i'd love to find out a bit more about your backstory we met on the mixed race studies facebook group which has which is a group set up for scholars who are interested in mixed race studies your mixed race and light skin a settler of immigrant descent chinese uh, white european with a jewish background but you're born in montreal quebec this is so interesting to me so can you tell us a little bit more about your culture and upbringing uh, absolutely, absolutely. And um, I, I currently live in Toronto. Um, my family moved here when I was uh, a child, and I've lived here um, almost my whole life. But I did, uh, I was born in Montreal and spent a lot of time there, and still have family there. Um, so the 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 quick backstory of my parents is my dad immigrated uh, from China and settled in Montreal to go to university, and this would have been in the fifties. And uh, my mother, uh, like uh, her mother, my grandmother, um, was born in Montreal. Um, and uh, actually both her parents, both my grandparents on my mother's side were born in Montreal. And uh, just very briefly for, for people that might not know about Canada and the specific realities of Quebec and Montreal, mm. is um, Montreal... Um, it's the least, um, and people say French, but the truth is Montreal isn't French any more than the rest of Canada is English. We speak English, but um, we're not English, like we're not British. So there's a whole Francophone-Anglophone divide. And uh, in Montreal, it's basically French Catholic. Um, again, less so than the rest of the province, but definitely back in the 50s and 60s when my parents were getting together and when... Uh, when uh, when me and my brother were born, my sister was born in the 70s, um, very, very much was basically French Catholic and then everybody else. So there's a level of marginality. Certainly my father is an immigrant who had to learn two languages um, before he could study at an English-speaking university, which was McGill University. Um, But my mother being from a Jewish community, definitely an outsider community. And there's actually a very large um, Jewish community in Montreal. So, um, so it's interesting in terms of my parents considered outsiders in Montreal and Quebec, who sort of, um, you know, sort of joined and uh, sort of created this, uh, this family with sort of three mixed race children. And um, so that's sort of the background. Um, my culture, it's interesting because um, I'm born and raised in, in Canada and I speak the way that I speak, which, you know, gives me a great deal of privilege, which we'll talk about more when we talk about my work. Um, however, you know, Canada mainstream culture is generally very white. And uh, so I also have for food-based holidays, I have Jewish and Chinese sort of holidays to draw from. So Passover uh, is, is one of the big, big holidays and uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year in, in the fall, in September. And I actually fasted for Yom Kippur for the first time this year. I generally don't do the uh, unpleasant holidays, but, <laughs> uh, but I wanted to give it a try. So I think it's supposed to be for the entire daylight of the day, which is much longer than 12 hours. So that's a challenge. So I think culture is very much for me driven by 
by food and then who my friends are, because I have a lot of friends for both those communities, as well as people from numerous other communities. And we all, not now, obviously, but we all can get together to sort of celebrate we can call it modified or sort of feminist versions of our traditional holidays, which is a really fun uh, thing to do. But yeah, so, so I, I enjoy that. Like I've, I've found ways to, uh, to sort of reclaim and reshape um, what culture means to me. And uh, Toronto is an extremely, um, not just multicultural and diverse, but it's a very rich city, especially for engaged um, sort of political folks, and and we can't always be talking about horrible things and oppression. So we we will often get together for celebrations. Yeah, thank you for that um, and the context about Montreal. Um, and I can imagine your parents have such interesting stories as well um, from coming from their different backgrounds and settling in in Montreal. That just sounds so interesting. Um, and yes, I, I also heard um, that Toronto is quite forward thinking, um, which is very attractive. I loved. I'd love to visit one day. I actually have some family um, that live in Toronto as well, and I haven't actually met them before so um that would be quite a nice experience oh nice interesting yeah and what the, the one thing about the how what what french is spoken in quebec that that french speakers talk about is that this is goes back to colonization which is in the 1700s when the french colonizers came um that Quebecois is basically frozen in time. So there's old fashioned sayings that they sp- simply don't use in modern French in France anymore, mm. but they're frozen in time because the, you know, the original Quebecois settlers slash colonizers just kept speaking that kind of French. And um, what's interesting is, is that the immigration pattern in Quebec is completely different than the rest of Canada because they have a lot of folks who are from former French colonies and that Mm -hmm. French is more their second language than English. So folks from Haiti, uh, folks from Vietnam and a few other places where they will um, be more comfortable speaking in French and you pretty much have to be bilingual to live and work um, in Quebec and Montreal. So, uh, or if you're not bilingual, you're you're quite limited in terms of what you can do. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'd love to kind of research that on a deeper level and and really understand it. My partner is French as well, so it's quite uh, interesting for him as well because he has also commented that the French is very different and he actually finds it a little bit difficult to understand. Um, So, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, You're also quite light-skinned like me, and all of my life I've had to explain my background to people, um, and people are confused about my racial identity, and it is frustrating sometimes to, to have to explain so much did you have this similar interrogation and an experience and how did you deal with this? Uh, Absolutely. I certainly have uh, similar uh, experiences both in the past and, uh, and in the present. And um, I am assumed to be white um, in combination with how I look and also how I speak because, um, because Canada and especially Toronto where I live is full of um, a lot of immigrants um, whose English is not their first language and there's a lot of discrimination they face because of that. So English is my first language, so I speak it. So, the, the, I mean, there's the, the label woman of colour 
um, is something that I've had a very difficult relationship with challenging over the years in terms of using that to describe myself. Um, I'm not white. I'm not Anglo or English. I am white passing and I have light skin privilege. So that is meaningful to me in terms of what, what that means around how I'm able to move in the world. Um, but when people see my last name and when people hear me speak um, and, and if I'm going to identify myself or do an introduction, I will very clearly talk about, you know, um, the way you describe me in terms of being light, light skin, mixed race. And, um, and because I have a very strong anti-racism way, I guess, um, mm. that it's going to be clear that if you're going to do any of that racist stuff, which people do, um, that there's going to be some uh, response to that, which frankly, white people can do as well. You don't have to be mixed or light to do that. Yeah. So, so that's something that is, uh, people don't challenge it when I say, you know, sort of what I am, my, my, my background, um, mostly because maybe in Canada, people are that's a that's that form of polite racism that they won't sort of challenge me sort of to my face but I also you know I do everything I'm like I'm light-skinned I have that privilege I'm not white and I have a very deep understanding of lightness and white supremacy and colorism and how that has benefited me for a number of different reasons and what I do about being in solidarity with other people, both in my community and not in my community, like in the Black and Indigenous community and in other racialized communities that, you know, need to have um, different understandings, um, better understandings of racism and anti-racism out there. Yeah, I think it it is about the understanding, really. And um, I mean, I'm not sure what it is completely like in Canada. I can only speak on my experience here in the UK. But um, yes, people, like you mentioned, have a very polite sort of way of, of dealing with uh, their racism or, or, or remarks that they might make. Um, and it's quite insidious sometimes. It's hard to pinpoint or, or say that you know that that what you've said is offensive because a lot of people could then just turn around and and say well no that's not racist so it's hard to kind of pinpoint that's absolutely true and i i guess i also want to add that um the polite form of racism i would say is only experienced by um well mostly experienced by those of us that are lighter skinned um Mm. there are people who don't experience anything around polite racism it is in your face violent oppressive racism um so um it's not like you know um that that doesn't exist here it absolutely does um what we have the phenomenon in canada is that people constantly say that we're not as bad as the united states and um and while that is statistically true in terms of violent racism in Canada because we're a tenth of their population and we definitely don't have a tenth of their violent um, incidents, especially with the police. Um, And Mm -hmm. that's partly because of gun culture that they have in the States that we don't have in Canada. Um, But comparing us to basically one of, if not the worst country when it comes to all issues related to race as well as class and other um, systemic oppressions um, is actually a meaningless thing to say 
You know, mm. it's sort of like there's the worst bully on the schoolyard. Well, you know, I only I only knocked down three kids today and that that bully knocked down 10 kids. So I'm better than them. Like to me, that's what that comparison sounds like. And um, so whenever someone says that, that's what I say back. And uh, they don't usually like that. But the, the but the truth <laughs> is, is that that's not that's not a cop out. That's not a way to say I don't want to do the work because I'm not as bad or we in Canada are not as bad as the States. It's like, okay, yes, we are not as bad as the States and we're still pretty bad. In fact, ask a random black or indigenous person in Canada and they will tell you something very different about their experience of sort of state violence in Canada with the police and with pipeline protests and all sorts of things. So Yeah, no, we do hear a lot of comparison with Canada and the US in the UK and um, they have that opinion exactly uh, of what yeah. you've just said. So I'm so glad that you explained that because it's so interesting um, to hear it from, from from your point of view I think it gives everybody something to think about and it makes so much sense as well there's no comparison really I mean there are problems everywhere I'm sure that you could speak to anyone in countries all around the world and there is or will be some issue of, of oppression or, or race racial issues um, absolutely yeah. So you studied for a master's degree in education. Can you tell us a little bit more about that course? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, the master's of education uh, degree is at um, the University of Toronto. And it's uh, sort of, a, I guess, a, a college or program within the University of Toronto called OISE that we call OISE, which is Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. And um, I took classes about what education, what adult education is. Um, the, there's the famous grandfather of adult education, uh, Paolo Freire, and, yes. um, who wrote uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed and a whole bunch of other books, but that's the, that's the main one. And, and I did study with some amazing professors. Um, and because you can choose your courses much more uh, liberally than you can in your undergrad, I, I deliberately chose as many professors of color as possible uh, because they were doing very interesting work um, that was relevant to what I wanted to do, which is to do uh, anti-racism education. Um, and my thesis, and, and I... So I wrote my thesis quite a while ago. Um, mm -hmm. I, got my, I got my degree in 97 and my thesis is sitting somewhere on a three inch floppy disk. I'm not joking. And, um, <laughs> and my hard copy, I cannot find. I looked and I can't find it. But my thesis was about the engagement of mixed race people in anti-racism work and mm. sort of how that can, what that can look like because yeah, so um, it's it's fairly old. I haven't read it for a while. I'm sure it's uh, there's a, a number of uh, problems with it, but um, and I'm sorry I don't have the title. But uh, but yeah, I, I was just just beginning to sort of think about um, my mixed race identity in combination with you know work that I could do in the world because um, I had certainly been thinking about my mixed race identity in different ways throughout my life. Um, and there's now a whole mixed race studies um, sector or department uh, at a number of different universities uh, in Canada. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I'd love to read that thesis. So if you have it saved on a floppy disk, please <laughs> send it to me because it sounds so interesting um, and I'd love to hear your point of view. When you are mentioning people of colour, the, the black lecturers, it's, it's so fortunate that you had that that privilege of being able to to work with people of colour because I had none. Um, my um, university, there was maybe, I literally think I met one black lecturer and that's it out of wow. the whole of the university. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I had a lot of problems at that particular establishment. Um, but that's a whole story <laughs> that we'll sure. discuss on another time. Um, but you do a podcast on your own experiences. Yeah, yeah. Especially. Well, and just um, to be clear, at that time at OIC, like there's many more now. Um, I studied with one um, black professor, like African um, he was from Africa and he was doing mm-hmm. amazing, still is, um, anti-racism work and work about racism and anti-black racism. That was actually the first time I heard the phrase anti-black racism was, was mm-hmm. back then, 20 plus years ago. Um, a, uh, a, an East Asian uh, professor uh, and a South Asian professor. And that was it. That was it for oh, professors wow. of color. So I took courses okay. with all of them and tried yeah. to take, you know, <laughs> more than one if I could, uh, depending on how the schedule worked. So I, I maxed that out, but it's, yeah. there's many more now and there's whole other departments now than, than there used to be around studying critical race theory and those sorts of things. But back then it was adult education or sociology in terms of what I was interested in, because there was different things around education, like curriculum development and things like that, which I was less interested in getting a, a degree in. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so just, just for that perspective, there weren't tons, but I think uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm a bit older than you. So there's less of a, like the fact that you had no professors yeah. when you were at school is pretty bad given that you know when this was there's certainly opportunity there are scholars out there it's not that you know people have to go searching for them but there needs to be and a number of my friends are professors now and they talk about huge problematic things around hiring um, and just pushing universities now in 2020 to think outside white scholarship and um, so folks are in there and still making these fights and not always winning. So it's, um, it's, it's a long, it's a long struggle. An ongoing battle for sure. This was only yes. two years ago, by the way, that I was studying. So it was. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's even more pathetic. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm so exactly. sorry. Seriously. I'm, I'm, yeah, that's. It's trauma, amazing. but um, yeah. It, yeah. I'm trying to, um, fight against it and um make you know bring more awareness to this and hopefully podcasts like this conversations like this can definitely add something um, mm. may not change but add something which i think is important equally um to to, to understanding uh, race and racism so um i'm not sure how long the gap was before you decided to start your consultancy firm may louis consultancy can you tell us when you first decided to do this? And secondly, how did you set this up? Um, well, I graduated in uh, 97, as I mentioned, and I basically started it on a part-time basis. Uh, it's never been my full-time work. 
So um, I've always had either full or part-time jobs with other agencies um, mm-hmm. and doing the consultancy on the side. Um, I'm working on maybe having it be more full-time now, but this is a good, like I said, um, quite a number of years, quite a number of years later. So uh, in Canada, it's interesting. Um, you can have a, a business and if you make under a certain amount of money, you don't have to charge what we call the HST harmonized sales tax. So mm-hmm. I didn't have to be incorporated. So I just basically had my name and that was fine. And um, I used to do my own taxes, but I got an accountant because um, you can, if you work from home, you can uh, have, you know, part of your rent um, to, you know, your office space, part of my internet, like just all these expenses that, that can be put towards the business because of course mm-hmm. I'm buying computers and that all is used of course, towards my business. So um, it was easier for me to, to find an accountant, which I did. I have a wonderful accountant who I'm still with and um, to sort of do that part. And when I've had jobs, he just folds in my, my tax stuff for my, for my paid work into that and sort of does his, uh, does his magic. So it was relatively easy to start because my business has always been relatively small. Um, and it still is relatively speaking on the small side. I, I was not, I never had an office, like a separate office. I've always worked out of my home. And if there's going to be meetings, I would meet, um, where my client's office is, um, or in coffee places. So, and now on zoom. So that's, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so not, not as hard to get started as, as you might uh, think. And, um, but what's interesting, and especially if you sort of look at my website, which I'll, I'll talk about a bit more too later, which is um, I only did education and training on anti-racism and anti-oppression when I first started. I mean, and that remains my primary uh, love it's work that I I feel I'm good at, especially introductory level um, work with people that have either never had a, a workshop like never taken a workshop like that before, or people that have a great deal of resistance to that. So I feel that that is and it's challenging for sure, but I I have some pretty good skills around um, bringing bringing ideas and concepts to people that maybe had never thought of these before. And it's funny what with social media, which which for me started, uh, I guess, just over 10 years ago when I joined Facebook. Um, and because of who my friends are and my sort of friends of friends, um, you know, people post things all the time. And I save things and credit when I can images or if there are publicly made sort of slide decks. And I'll always credit the creators uh, who've done that and incorporate those into my training. So my brain is never off uh, mm-hmm. around that. And that's actually okay. Cause that's integrated into who I am as a person. So yeah. I basically, if someone posts something that is about racism or equity or inequity, or, you know, just there's tons of amazing stuff. And I have a million files and very organized on my computer um, around the categories of where things are. So someone posted uh Again, a lot of memes, a lot of memes as well, which are great. So someone posted <laughs> something about headlines for um, a black victims of violence compared to headlines of white perpetrators of violence mm. and how they're described. And, um, and it is like, and this is 
American or Canadian based um, just because there's a, there's a relevancy, you know, to that. And uh, so Trayvon Martin, for example, who was, uh, who was killed by, um, by a white guy who, um, who was described like sort of as, as, or, and, and Mike Brown, like they're often described as more sort of larger and more threatening than they really are, were. And, um, and then if it's a, if it's a white perpetrator, there'll be something around was always good in school or enjoyed, you know, just something very personal, something very humanizing and that this mm-hmm. happens consistently that, and these are white perpetrators of violence, not white victims of violence, perpetrators of violence where it's pretty clear they did it and it just has to officially go through the courts to be legally proven and that there's this humanization and, um, and that, and a de- like a deliberate dehumanization of black victims in terms of that there was an argument or there was a scuffle and just other kinds of language when here is someone who is unarmed, you know, facing the police who are armed. So there's already a power imbalance there. Um, and yet, so, so as, as one example, because then I'm like, Oh, where was that meme? You know, but I know if I saved it, yeah. then it'll be in one of my files rather than having to, to dig through that. And that's made my presentations when I do them uh, quite richer, I think. Um, but to, over the years, I've expanded into a number of other topics. Um, because I worked in the nonprofit sector for many years um, as manager and executive director, as well as staff, and I've sat on nonprofit boards. And Canada and Ontario have very specific rules and laws about needing nonprofit boards, and then they have very specific roles to play in terms of the organization. So I have developed my skills around that. So I have now, I now train um, when people, you know, invite me um, to do, to do board, you know, for a new board member, you never sat on a board before. What are your responsibilities? Um, So I train new, new board members. Um, What are your roles? You know, what is the nonprofit structure? Um, We also have a, a charity, um, branch as well, which is not quite the same as nonprofit. So explaining the difference and that kind of thing. And I write sort of policies and procedures, which are generally things that people really don't like doing in house. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if they can, you know, kind of have someone else do it, um, or update the ones that they currently have, I am, I'm actually a bit of a policy wonk. And so I love, uh, I love doing that. So that's, um, and I enjoy doing that kind of work that I know nobody likes doing, but is needed, uh, especially it needs to be updated. If you have 15-year-old policies and then something happens, you're kind of in big trouble. So um, just to be sort of proactive around that. So, so slowly I've expanded to do sort of a lot of other kinds of work that's, that is outlined on my website. But, um, but, my, but my first... Uh, love and enjoyment is the um, anti-racism, anti-oppression workshops. Um, and what's funny about teaching is, um, is I've taught briefly twice at the college level in a classroom um, with college students, first year college students. And, um, and that kind of teaching is not for me. Um, mm-hmm. And I definitely don't want to work with children or teenagers in primary, elementary or high school. And I uh, greatly respect people that do, but that, that level or, or teach even teaching at the university, which I would need a, a PhD to do. Um, mm-hmm. 
And so I don't, I don't have an interest in doing that. So I feel like I, I'm, I'm sort of at the grassroots where I'm most comfortable doing work, usually with other nonprofit organizations who themselves are doing important work. But this kind of training is, is something that's, um, that I think is important uh, to have on an ongoing basis. And, and there's something about sort of my light mixedness that, um, that I do have a role to play, you know, to sort of bring more white folks on board um, with anti-racism and um, both because it's a good thing to do. And secondly, because if there are policies around um, what kind of organization, you know, the person is working in, then then it becomes you know sort of part of the job description and then that can sort of be kind of uh you now i completely agree with you um and especially you mentioning being so light-skinned as well i know and i accept my privileges as well and i i completely um understand that i'm definitely more privileged a lot more doors open to me because of the skin uh, the color of my skin you know you and i have privilege because of how our society treats people who are lighter skinned, not because being lighter skinned is better than being darker skinned, you know? And I think understanding that can help, you know, you know, in terms of feeling badly, it's sort of like, we look like what we look like and we have the analysis and have the understanding that we do. And maybe, and I think in my case, it might be more likely that white folks are going to be racist in front of me, including, by the way, members of my white family, mm-hmm. you know, and um, who forgets, you know, that my mom married a Chinese guy. And, um, and so then it's just like, you know, then there's, there's a window, there's an opportunity to say, hey, did you know that? Or, you know, by the way, or however you want to kind of open a conversation, or even if it's about, you need to not talk like that around me. You know, like to me, that's kind of my last resort around if the person isn't moving. Uh, Or, you know, if you choose to talk that way around me, I'm going to make a big deal out of it every time you talk like that. So it's just going to become so uncomfortable socially for you because your comments make me socially uncomfortable. You know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm. So rather than remaining silent to sort of, you know, you know, be a bit of a troublemaker or a shit disturber, which I'm sometimes uh, thought of, I'm certain, um, especially around family. And it's just like, that's kind of, you know, it's 2020, you know, let's, let's move with the program, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I know it's, it's an obvious question um, for you and I, but why is it so important that businesses and organizations receive this education and training about anti-oppression, anti-racism, etc.? cetera? Um, yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I mean, personally, I think this should be mandatory, ongoing, and accountable for all businesses and organizations. Um, And not just training, um, but systemic changes in policy, hiring practices, work culture, and all the other ways um, that BIPOC, do you use BIPOC in uh, in the UK? Black Um, Indigenous, Black and BIPOC, Black Indigenous people of color. We we use that a lot in Canada and the States, just as a short term. Well, I personally haven't heard it before, so um, I'm not sure. I think I've seen BAME, B-A-M-E. Yes, and I I can't stand this term. I'm sorry, but yeah. Okay, okay. Okay. (laughs) We can talk about that for sure. But BIPOC is pretty much, uh, even though people of color, you know, people like to say racialized and other things because people of color is a whole other phrase that 
can do some have some analysis but we use we use BIPOC um, and just you know because sometimes it's not about representation you know because sometimes there's you know there, there's folks who who have just adapted to sort of the white supremacist values and don't want to challenge any of that and don't want to be singled out but if it's structural and everyone engages and um, and that we know right we know that um, that racism and other oppressions uh, like sexism and homophobia, transphobia, classism. We know that that's used to keep people out of jobs, um, housing, different experiences in the healthcare system, education, and the police and the justice system. So um, the only way that that's going to change is sort of on all levels through training, through systemic ways of understanding um, how how cultures work. How, how white supremacy and classism and patriarchy get perpetuated over and over again and internalized, right? We internalize that as well. There's harassment, there's uh, microaggressions, uh, and there's also straight out macroaggressions, you know, all of which are, are obviously wrong and need to um, be lessened and then hopefully eradicated. But that needs to happen with, again, greater education, which is uh, one level that, that I do this, but, but at, at sort of higher levels of understanding um, how these systems work and reinforce each other. So I have a master's degree in applied theatre, which is basically uh, theatre that can be applied in the community, in education, um, for people who are ex-offenders, for example. And my final dissertation, for my final dissertation, I wrote a thesis titled, How Does One Create Interventions That Are Inclusive in Terms of Race Using Applied Theatre Practices? As a part of my research inquiry, I used an ethnographic inquiry because I felt it was important to draw on my own experiences um, that I've experienced of racism and microaggressions and, and ignorance I've endured for most of my life, but mostly in education. Um, I was actually discouraged to write this final piece. One of my tutors told me to think about my grades um, and said I shouldn't rock the boat. And this led me to feel extremely anxious and pressured but just from his reaction alone, I knew that it was something that needed to be heard and that I needed to do. Have you experienced anything like this yourself? Um, or if you haven't, how would you advise somebody to deal with this if it happens to them? Um, I have absolutely experienced this, uh, not in, in school, but, but on the job. And, uh, and I want to say that I'm, I'm really sorry that you had to endure this. Um, because that that affects us, right? And when we're talking about the context of being a graduate student, and you have uh, tutors or you know people that will be reading and grading, right, your papers and yeah. your work, um, that there's a huge power difference, power difference, and that that matters because there's a limited amount of options that you have in that moment because you're still a student, you haven't graduated yet. And it's similar to when you experience something, let's say from a boss, you know, that there's a lot of limitations. So um, in terms of dealing with it, uh, you know, there, there's a number of different ways to deal with it in the moment. And one way is what your position is in terms of the level of power you have 
And it often is that you don't have a lot of power in that situation. If it's a boss, if it's a thesis advisor, um, even a, a colleague or someone that, that's higher up in the chain than you are. And you need to sort of strategically decide um, what is the best way forward for you in that moment and then where you will get support outside of that moment. So hopefully there are friends or family that we can talk to, different communities that we can, you know, talk to, whether online, well, more online now, but, you know, someday in the future in person um, to vent, to get support, to get ideas, to get strategies. Someone can say that happened to me or, oh yeah, that professor has been like that um, for many years. There's lots of stories. So, you know, if there, if a complaint is possible, you know, so, so a lot of different options. And um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be prescriptive around you must do, you know, A, B, and C, just because it, it simply might not be possible. And when there's a huge power difference, um, you know, and the person is either aware or not aware of that power difference, um, that makes a difference too, in terms of what your actual choices are. So, um, so yeah, so you sort of decide in the moment what you're going to do and then seek out support either for further action, complaints. Um, you know, if it's a job, perhaps consider, you know, looking for another job and leaving that job, although the world is quite uh, quite imperfect and racism is everywhere. So, um, so yeah, so, so there is, uh, there's not a lot of options, but it's not that people are, you know, without anything around getting, getting support, or at least just knowing that it's wrong and knowing that uh, this was, you know, not, not called for. And, you know, and, and as a creative person myself, because I, I enjoy writing and I write creative nonfiction about my life is just like, okay, well, I'm going to write something about this and you're not going to look so good because you just, you know, sort of spilled your mm -hmm. racism all over me. And, uh, and you did that all on your own because of what you've said and what, what beliefs and, and attitudes you clearly think is okay. So, so I think there, there's a, I think there's a nice um, flexibility around what artists can do when we're given, you know, kind of real life material that way. Yeah, 100%. I agree with that. I would describe the racial ignorance in the UK as insidious sometimes. It's difficult to identify, as mentioned earlier on, uh, the racism um, in some of the language or actions used against people of colour. What is it like in Canada? Is it? Would you say that it's quite similar to the UK? I guess I'm I'm not as familiar of, of how it works in the UK, but uh, definitely insidious in your face at different times. And again, it also depends on who you speak to. Uh, mm. My experience of direct racism has been pretty mild, um, but uh, when we all used to go out as a family when we were younger. Um, you know, mixed race families are not, you know, it's, it's, you know, white supremacy doesn't particularly like mixed race families. And uh, so there's, you know, um, when we were young, we moved to a new uh, house in a very white suburb and uh, we had eggs thrown at our house by, uh, by kids in the neighborhood. And we never knew who did it. Um, but there was a possibility that it was some of the kids that I was going to school with. And um, so that was pretty horrible and, um, and unsafe and, and those, you know, those sorts of things. Um, but in, in Canada in general, um, 
you know, there's, there's state violence, you know, there, the, the police, um, the army in smaller communities, uh, both in the cities where there's more people of color in cities, but in rural areas, there's different, uh, we have, we, we have indigenous people who are restricted to reservations and, um, and tons of violence that they experience uh, in different different kinds of ways um, by the police in those rural communities, police that are mostly white. Um, there's land claims. There's a lot of issues in Canada. Canada is very young compared to the UK. Um, and there's, there's literally unceded land. The entire West Coast is unceded, meaning that there were never any treaties. And so basically white folks basically came in and they just made cities like Vancouver and Victoria and just started taking up space. And there was never any treaty around what that means to share the space with the people that live there, continue to yeah. live there now. Um, so the, the, the colonial history is much younger here um, than it is in the UK. And the UK, of course, is one of the, the colonizers of Canada. and um, I, I, I call the French, basically the, the English and the French fought and the French lost, you know, but that was a battle between two colonizers and one lost and one won um, because the, the French in Quebec are often portrayed as sort of the marginalized uh, and, the, and the English are, are the, the oppressors and they are the oppressors, but, um, but the French are simply the colonizers that just didn't win, right? They didn't win Canada. They were given Quebec yeah. as a, as a concession. So language and actions, I think, um, you know, some of the vernacular, some of the wording might be different, but, um, and Canada has a funny thing because, because Canada, there's a whole whiteness, just the word white, right? The, the whiteness of the snow, the whiteness of the landscape. And there's this whole understanding of whiteness in Canada, that if you're Canadian, you're white. And if you're Canadian and you're not white, then there's the, where are you from? Because you can't possibly be from here because only mm. white people are from here. And um, so a lot of that happens. And even though there's this whole land of immigrants, yay, immigrants, um, which is promoted in, in certain cities, not, not across Canada, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, because the truth is uh, Canada, uh, I forget the stats, but Canada is like 73% white. You know, like Canada as a whole country is very, very white. And, um, and so there's this, basically, if you think of typical Canadian things, it'll all be pointers to uh, white culture, whether English or, or French. There's this sort of understanding that because we're nicer than the United States, because that's the other thing, and we could mm-hmm. very well be nicer. But um, again, I don't know what nicer means when you're, you know, um, when it's just less because there's fewer people. Yeah, I never knew that about Canada. So that's that's really interesting. To be honest, I, I don't actually know the stats of the UK, to be honest. Um, it does feel, because I'm in London, which is quite diverse in comparison to other parts of the UK, like the countryside, which is very white still. So I find that people that come to London from those places kind of get a bit of a culture shock um, because they're not used to it. Like I remember um, a friend of mine who who's white, she, she had a friend who was just from the outskirts of London, but she, apparently she had never seen a person of color in real life before. I was shocked by this. Wow. Like completely shocked. Yes. Um, so 
you know, it's, it's, there are places like that in the UK. Um, and I still kind of find it unbelievable. She said like that she had only seen a person of color on the TV and actually her view of people of color was of fear. And I can yes. only guess that that was from what she's watching on the news, the media that kind of portray um, that, that the media have about people of color, which is maybe quite similar to Canada as well mm-hmm, and, and, mm-hmm. and the US. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite shocking. I think things have got a little better here. Uh, when my sister, my sister's 14 years um, senior to me. Um, and when she was growing up, like my mum, and as a mixed race family as well, like people would kind of spit at my mum on the street. Somebody refused to serve her in the market because they they saw that she had a mixed race child mm. kind of things like that. Um, and I think, yeah, it's not as bad now, but it's still there. It's just a bit hush-hush, if, if that makes sense. It's not really in in your face as much as it was back then the workshops you facilitate sound incredibly useful to name a few you teach learning about anti-oppression sexism misogyny learning about anti-black racism homophobia heterosexism can you tell us a little bit more about the workshops and what they entail uh sure sure um so I generally will do, um, I, I prefer to do a full day workshop. Um, I will do half days. Uh, I no longer do sort of two hour workshops just because that's simply not enough time. And um, so, yeah, so a half day or a full day. And it, it um, you know, depending on the group, because I do try to tailor the topics to specifically what the group wants and has identified what the staff team needs. Um, And I'll sometimes do a bit of a survey, you know, just to sort of see sort of where are people at, what do they want to learn? And um, so there'll be, you know, large group exercises. This is my adult education background, right? So large group exercises, um, pair exercises with two people, small group exercises. And just imagine this obviously in person, people moving around the room, uh, I'll have videos, I'll have um, sort of still pictures, still images to promote discussion with questions, uh, generally leaving things fairly open um, in terms of trying to grab people from different places. So some people are, are word learners, so I might have a, a short reading that everyone does and then we talk about it. Um, if, there's, um, if there's time and they want to do this, Um, I'll ask them to send me ahead of time scenarios, like names, like tell me something that's happened at work and you didn't know what to do. And, um, and then we'll do sort of skits where it's acted out and then kind of problem solved at the end. So very practical, very helpful. Um, We'll talk about terminology, you know, all sorts of um, ways to, to have sort of a similar language and, um, and then generally ending with next steps as in you brought me in here to do this work for this time, this day, this afternoon, um, what can you take away? What, what are things that you can do within your organization? So, and there's been different suggestions of sort of reading club or lunch and learn where people take turns facilitating where, where that learning can continue. Um, because I, I open with, you know, our learning is never over. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's another 
sort of uh, belief of adult education as a, as a field. And, and I believe that, that, you know, um, once you decide that you've learned everything you need to know, especially about this, about anti-oppression, um, then that would be a sign that you need even more learning than, uh, than you've had already. And, um, and when I say things like my own privilege, when I say my learning is never over me, the expert that you've hired to bring in here, my learning is never over. I think that, that, works to normalize some of this learning. So it's not this defensive thing of what, what you're calling me racist. What you're calling me a homophobe. And it's like, actually, yeah, you're racist as I am, as everyone Mm. here is because we've internalized it. So take the sting away from that. And yet the truth of that is, you know, if we're all brought up in a white supremacist society, if we all grew up in Canada or the States or the UK, then you know, whatever our background, we've internalized the values of white supremacy and patriarchy and, you know, all the other sort of systems of oppression. So if we can have that as like a foundation, we can now build on that. If we can push past denial, anger, and I've experienced all of that pushback from people, if we can sort of get past that, yeah, you're a good person, excellent. And you've internalized this as I have. So let's, let's now move forward on this larger ongoing project. And, um, and it's about engaging people to me. So the, yeah, so, so, so the workshops are those there, there's um, many, many others that, that I have done and and will do for people um, as a way of either beginning engagement or ongoing engagement around both how this affects your work, but also, you know, um, you know, yourself as a, you know, as a person moving in this unjust world. I love that when you said um, learning never stops because I, I completely feel the same. I feel like I've got so much to learn. I feel like maybe I've even just managed to scratch the surface, but there's so much depth to understanding um, these topics. So yeah, it's a continuous thing. I know that, that some people have this thing, they say, oh, I'm too old to learn or I've kind of, but that's just the wrong attitude to have. You know, I believe that everyone can learn no matter what age you are. Absolutely, yeah. Since the pandemic, has anything changed about the way you operate? Um, well, with no more meeting in person, um, I've had to adapt a fair bit. So um, getting Zoom and doing workshops over Zoom. And um, that is definitely challenging just because um, that's not how any of us learned how to learn, right? I mean, even when when I do my workshops, it's often a circle. If there's 15 or 20 people, it's not usually set up like a classroom because I do like splitting people up into different groups and having little small group discussions. So that is possible on Zoom, but then there's the whole screen fatigue. So trying to keep things um, sort of switching up. So having, you know, a bit of uh, me talking, but then discussions in the large group, then having smaller groups, you know, showing again, the same sort of video material or images and having discussions, questions. So all of that stays the same, but how it's delivered and really how well it lands with people is less known to me. Have you ever had a very difficult client or organization that you've worked with to teach? And, and how did you deal with this? Very good question. Um, a lot of people resist this work because 
whole bunch of reasons. Um, and the main one being, I'm a good person, so I don't need to be here. I know racism is bad. Why do I need to be here? And, uh, and they will project that outward to the facilitator. And, um, and so, and it'll, it'll kind of come out in different kind of sideways. Uh, um, so what I'm, what I'm modeling when someone, let's say, openly challenges me, which people have, um, is I'm then modeling in front of everybody else how to deal with either this person specifically or this kind of incident specifically. And, and I take that responsibility quite seriously. So one example is someone who basically insisted that the workshop was a waste of his time, that he didn't need to be there, that the stuff that I was saying, you know, he knew that already. Um, he, he did have to be there. This was mandatory training. Um, this is for a board that sort of everyone gets this training, whether you're a new or returning board member. And, and he was a returning board member. And, uh, and I'd seen him in meetings and in meetings that were not related to this. So this was basically how he, how he was in the world. So it wasn't in that way personal to the workshop, but it was how he moved in the world in terms of sort of asserting his authority. Uh, and this was specific to, to me and the workshop that I was trying to deliver. And, um, and this was a group that very, very proudly read. Uh, this was a very non-diverse group, almost all white people, just a handful of, uh, of uh, women of color and a handful of white women. Um, and they very proudly read a diversity statement at the beginning of their meeting, every meeting that they, that they did that I was present for. Um, and uh, so I found that interesting. And, um, and what happened uh, is that I said, I need to refer you to this statement that you read proudly and happily as a group, every meeting that you have, mm -hmm. and that someone at some point decided um, that, you know, having this training every year for everybody, new and returning members, was a good idea. Um, as a proponent of lifelong learning, and I talked to them, as, as I've just talked uh, to you, Michelle, about my, my true belief in lifelong learning for me and for everybody. I find sometimes that when I've discussed my racial trauma or experiences with my white counterparts, I felt a lack of empathy on a few occasions. I've overheard a couple of students in the past making ignorant comments about a location in London where a lot of people of African descent have settled. And their comments made me feel upset and uncomfortable. I decided to confide in a friend who was white and she told me to just brush it off and not allow these things to affect me. But I felt like she didn't really understand where I was coming from. Why do you think there is this, this lack of empathy sometimes? When I think of, you know, sort of uh, white people, especially white people who are well-intended and who have the belief that racism is wrong, which I assume is, is um, you, you know, your, your white friend, you know, believes both of those things, mm -hmm. uh, that there's sort of a, um, it's as if that's the end, that's the end of the journey, right? And um, racism exists, and it's wrong. And like, period, full stop, that's the end. And um, so for you to sort of share this, especially about other people, let's say that you may mutually know, or whatever, there's a level of racism doesn't exist anymore. It's only in the past only mm -hmm. horribly bad people like the KKK or, you know, people like that are racist and nobody else is racist. 
Um, so, so to me, there's a disconnect around, this is not a lived experience that she's had, uh, nor has she extended um, her understanding to lived everyday reality of other people. Because as I said, I've, I've experienced very, very mild racism in the world. So when I move in the world, I don't experience racism, but I am aware of it. And, you know, there's different ways to kind of intervene depending on how you might feel in a moment. And, um, and just that understanding of if the police are walking towards me, you know, and a friend of mine who's a darker person of color and we're both at a protest, I know where they're going to go, right? Mm. They're not going to go to me. They're going to go to my friend if they're going to be aggressive. So then there's different choices around what we can do in those moments. So, so to me, that's the difference between your friend who I'll use the word liberal to describe your friend and an active ally resistor, um, which is where I hope uh, most white people or light-skinned people end up uh, around anti-racism in terms of understanding that. And um, you're now added with an additional emotional burden of, I've just said this and the person is acting like a brick wall. Mm-hmm. Because you can't, she can't fake empathy if it's not there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and nor are you in any position, especially in that moment, uh, to now offer some kind of 101 education around <laughs> why that should matter to her, right? Um, yeah. And that's generally not a good role to play with friends anyways, just because that's a whole problematic. So, so for our listeners um, who are listening right now, what would you advise them to do to, to be more actively involved in the discussions that we're, we're having right now? Talk about these issues. Have uncomfortable conversations. Uh, don't necessarily, if you're white, go up to your only friend of color and say, hey, explain racism to me. Oh, but please, please don't do that. <laughs> but, you know, try to, like when they talk about stuff, like for example, my advice if I could go back in time to your friend, when you said, you know, what you said around sort of hearing racist talk from your social group or your student, you know, people in your student group, um, I would say, listen, and I would mm-hmm. say, you know, if this is a friend who you like and care about, who's clearly bothered, maybe you weren't actively upset, but is clearly bothered by this to say, I, I don't, to be honest, I don't, uh, Michelle, I don't understand why you're upset. Can you, is it okay? Are you okay to explain it to me? You know, and then you can say, you know, no, I don't want to explain, or maybe, yes, I do. But because Michelle, you opened the conversation, you know, to sort of have that kind of response. And there's tons of sort of white um, sort of uh, ally learner support kind of groups, um, again, online where white folks, you know, in all sorts of contexts are talking about these issues and even sharing, like, I feel uncomfortable when this happens and I freeze and I don't know what to say and I don't want to say the wrong thing and I don't want to be offensive and just all those fears that white people have. And what I like to say when I'm doing workshops is um, whatever your fear of messing up or seeming racist or all those things, just remember you are racist as we all are, and you will make mistakes. You're not perfect. No one is. And that's not the bar. The bar isn't perfection. The bar is openness and learning. 
you know, there's different Patreon things for people that have websites and podcasts and stuff like that, as well as, you know, buying. Yes, that's a good piece of advice. I completely agree with you. And I'll definitely link uh, if you send over some of the examples of books or or podcasts or any material that you have, I will definitely uh, post that on Uh, the social media pages for people to take a look at as well now moving on to my favorite part of the show which is cats you've already given us uh, a little brief about the cats at the beginning in your in your life so you have two cats now uh, serenity and chaos what are they like as individual cats what are their personalities like um they are it's it's interesting. So Serenity is um, she she can be very aloof. If uh, if you walk into my apartment, Chaos will run up and basically demand that you pet him, and he'll squeak at you. He makes adorable little squeaky noises, and she'll just kind of look at you like, "Who are you? What are you doing here?" Um, <laughs> but when she knows you, she's then just a big baby. She'll roll over. She'll show her belly. And, uh, and just be sort of a big, uh, a big fun, fuzzy uh, cat. So um, I call Chaos, uh, one of his nicknames is Mr. Doofus, because um, <laughs> he, he has this expression on his face where his tongue is half hanging out, and he has a bit of a va- vacant look in his eyes, so he's just like, mm-hmm. and it's just like, oh, you're not very smart, are you? But he's so <laughs> affectionate and fun and adorable. Um, where she kind of looks at you and she sort of has a glare sometimes. I'll wake up in the morning and she's on the pillow beside me and I'm, I open my eyes and there she is glaring at me, basically like, <laughs> why are you lying there? Why aren't you doing something for me? I don't understand. I don't understand this, this injustice that's happened to me. Um, but again, she can be very cuddly and I call her, sometimes I call her the princess of evil because she has that <laughs> glary kind of look. Um, so they're just, they're just fun. They're black and white tuxedo cats and, uh, they are fun and, uh, and a funny story, uh, about, uh, about Serenity, who uh, is, is the calmer one. Chaos is a little more hyper, um, is, uh, I have a, a little balcony slash fire escape in my apartment and, uh, I was feeding the birds over, over one winter. So this is, Technically, this was my fault. So the birds were used to coming up to this door that I have that I open and I sort of put food out. And uh, this is all through the winter. And then it was the spring. And so then I opened it because they don't like to go out when it's cold. And -hmm. it was warmer. So they started to go out. And one morning, um, I hear this kerfuffle on the balcony. And she looks at me through the door. And she comes in the door because the door is open. So the doorway. And she has a sparrow in her mouth. Oh, no. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I, I, I wear glasses. I don't even think I have my glasses on, but I could see. And she was bringing it in to do what cats do, which is to play with it and kill it, because that's what cats do. They're predators. So I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh my God. So I grabbed her and put her face towards the door and pinched the side of her mouth and she let the bird go and the bird flew away because she hadn't harmed it. She was just holding it. And the oh. bird had a great story to tell its friends um, <laughs> of being literally in the jaws of death. And, uh, and I'm just staring at her like, okay. And she did this for the first time when she was like eight, right? Like this was like seven or eight. She was it's not that long ago. And it's like, you're hungry. You have food. 
like all the time, like what's up? But I understand that it's, that it's instinct and that's what they do. But that gave me a heart attack at six in the morning when I really <laughs> didn't want to uh, wake up that quickly. Do you have any stories about how cats have contributed to your well-being? Absolutely. I mean, uh, especially during the pandemic, I live alone and I've been spending obviously more time at home. And one thing that both my cats and chaos took much longer, like basically Serenity picked me. Um, when I got them, I was in a relationship and uh, Serenity picked me as I'm her human. I didn't pick her. So she would sit on me and purr on me. And there is almost nothing in the world more beautiful and comforting than that feeling of, uh, of a warm cat sitting on you. And um, chaos did not for years and years. And then the first time he did it, it was just like, oh my God, nobody move. Shh, shh, move. <laughs> chaos is on me. Chaos is on me. And, uh, and so now uh, he does it all the time. And, um, and I'll sort of lie with sort of my legs up and he'll sort of lie on my legs. Uh, sometimes he'll lie in my lap, uh, but mostly he lies there to fall asleep. He actually gets uh, irritated when I pet him because that wakes him up. It's very funny. They're, they're, they're both so different. <laughs> and, uh, and if I'm out, because, you know, sometimes I do go out, I might have an appointment or uh, just have to actually, you know, go get groceries or something. And, um, and I'll come home and uh, he doesn't glare because Serenity is the one that, that glares at me. But, but it'll just be like this, where were you? We, we, we had a nap scheduled and, and you were gone. It's just like, okay, I'm back. Can I just take my coat off and, you know, put my groceries away? Just one sec, one sec. And he actually, I, I think he understands. Sometimes I have to get up when he's on me and I'll be just like, one sec, one sec. And he'll wait on the chair. And I'll rush around and do things and then I'll come back uh, and then he gets back on me. So um, I thought that's pretty, that's pretty cute. And, so uh, cute. Yeah. If our listeners are thinking about getting a cat at all, can you give any tips, maybe a rescue cat like yourself? Are there any tips that you can give people? I think to understand that cat ownership, you know, there's an old joke, uh, dogs have owners, cats have staff. <laughs> so basically the cat runs the house. So if you are like, Hey, I want to cuddle with the cat right now. And you pick up the cat and try to cuddle with the cat. Um, that cat has to want to cuddle with you or it's going to run away. So the best thing to do is to just let them do their things. There are cats that never sit on top of people, which I thought, like I said, I thought chaos was one of those cats because he never did until quite late. So you basically, <laughs> if you do what the cats do and the cats are happy, then, or do what the cats want, um, then that's, you know, and they want to be petted because they like that. Uh, it gets fairly cold here in Canada and I keep my apartment fairly cool. So if they're cold or cool, they will probably more likely want to snuggle with you. I've really, really enjoyed and loved listening to everything you said. Um, I'm just literally trying to process everything. And, <laughs> and I definitely, I'm, I think I'm going to listen back more than 
once or twice to this episode and I think that the listeners will definitely get a lot from this whole conversation that we've had today um so thank you so much for taking the time oh, out thank you thank you to talk I, I I am doing work uh online and I suspect that that will continue after you know I start doing in-person workshops again um my website is um triple w dot m a y l u i dot com um so just my name may louie m a y l u i dot com and um it lists um the the general categories of the work that i do i'm really happy that we had a chance to uh to do this michelle so thank you for uh for setting this up and um you asked really great questions and i really hope that uh the listeners that hear it um get something from it and have some um, interesting sort of thoughts about it. I think they certainly will. Thank you so much again and goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye.